The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. We can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And of course, we've been working our way through Romans now for several weeks. And our text for today is verses 1 through 11. We're going to walk through a, a pretty good chunk uh, of Scripture this morning. And so I'd like to begin by uh, reading our text. It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. What's your first impression of that passage? Well, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty confrontational, isn't it? It's pretty direct. Right, that Paul is, is going after these people and he's saying some strong things that, that people don't necessarily like to hear. You, you might even say it's a scary passage of Scripture. And, and that would, to some extent, be true. So, so the question then is, why is Paul so negative? Why is he being so confrontational? Well, well to answer that question, we, I think it's, this is a good time for us to maybe step back and think of the big picture of what Paul is doing at this point in the book of Romans. So uh, this is our outline of the book, and remember that we are in the first major section of Romans, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 425, which I'm calling the heart of the gospel. So, so in this first major section of the book, Paul is out to prove that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the second half of the section, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, he gets to the good news of the gospel. And it's a wonderful, wonderful section where Paul describes how God saves us in Christ. But the only way that anyone will ever appreciate the good news of the gospel is if they first appreciate the bad news. So Paul has to get people lost. He has to bring them to the end of themselves and Help them to appreciate the fact that they cannot save themselves so that they can realize 
their need to rest wholly and completely in what Jesus did on the cross. So, so Paul begins in chapter 1, verse eight, verses 18 through 32, by, by, by talking about, by confronting the Gentile world. And so we've seen the last three Sundays in this series that, that Paul talks about how, how all people have access to the knowledge of God through creation. They know He is real, and yet they deny the knowledge of God. They reject Him. And so God hands them over to a spiral of sin and destruction. And, and chapter 1 paints a pretty dark picture of the Gentile world. And it's a sobering section of Scripture, but, but the main point of chapter 1 really is not that controversial. You know, if you go up to most, if you were to go up to a pagan, or go up to today a secularist, and say, do you believe that you are right with God? Well, well most of them are going to acknowledge, no, I don't worship Him, I don't serve Him, I don't obey His will, so if He's out there... I'm sure I'm in trouble, right? That's what they're probably going to say. But the moral religious person is going to have a much harder time accepting the fact that he needs to be saved. So if Paul's going to prove that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then he has to prove to the religious person that no matter how good he is, he also is in need of salvation. And that's where Paul turns his attention in in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 20. And he's going to make some strong statements here that that, that are hard for people to grasp and and hard for them to accept. But, But they have to be said because the only way that someone can fully rest in Jesus is if they first come to the end of themselves and recognize that they have no hope of resting in themselves. They have to rest only in Christ. So so our text for today, in the next few passages that we'll look at, are especially important for anyone who believes that he can be good enough to earn salvation. And, And as well, I think these passages also provide a lot of really practical help for us as Christians as we try and share the gospel with those people. Because those are the hardest people to talk to about Christ. The people that don't think they have a problem, don't think they have a need. So, so I think this passage is going to be helpful for us on both of those fronts. So, so that said, let's dive into the text. And, and the text begins in verses 1 and 2 by presenting a problem, a specifically a problem for this religious person. Now, now I should mention at the outset uh, that Paul is primarily dealing with the fact that the Jews condemned the Gentiles. This is primarily addressed to a Jew. So, now now verse 1 only explicitly says that he is speaking to everyone who passes judgment. But but we know he's thinking of the Jews because if you look at verse 17, verse 17 says, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. And really, this entire section, uh, extending down through chapter 3, verse 20, is all clearly directed towards people who, who believe that because they're Jews, uh, because they obey the law, that that's what makes them right with God. So, so when you read through this passage, imagine Paul having a conversation with an elite Jew. Someone like Paul before the road to Damascus, before he met Christ. 
And so think of him as, as speaking to someone with, with all the human credentials of spirituality. He grew up in the right family. He's done all the right deeds. And he looks the part of a truly religious man. And you know what? He knows it. He knows he's got all the credentials. He thinks he is spiritual, and he is sure that God accepts him. I mean, why wouldn't God accept someone like me? And so because he thinks he is spiritual, because he thinks he is right with God, and Paul mentions here in verse 1 that he passes judgment on the Gentiles of chapter 1. So this guy, you know, imagine him, he's listening to the book of Romans, and Paul's going through Romans chapter 1, and he's pronouncing these judgments and these criticisms of the Gentile world, and this guy's sitting in the audience, and he's amening all of it. He's nodding his head, shaking his fist. He's like, that's right. Get him, Paul. But then his attitude dramatically changes in chapter 2 when Paul turns the crosshairs on this man and his fellow Jews. And specifically, Paul asserts in this section that the Jews committed the same sins. I mean, what's he say there in verse 1? He says, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, it's worth emphasizing that Paul does not condemn this man for, for, for judging and condemning genuine sins of other people. And I think that's worth emphasizing because we live in a day where we are constantly told that any judgment of other people is wrong. And the Bible never teaches that. The Bible never says that it's wrong to condemn genuine evil. No, instead, Paul condemns this Jew for what? For practicing the same things. So this guy is a hypocrite. He puts on a religious show. He dresses up, he wears the right clothes, he says the right things, he goes to the right places. But in the dark, he commits the very same sins as the Gentile. Now, when I read through this passage, and maybe when you read through this passage, you're you're initially not quite sure that you believe Paul on that. Is it really true that that this Jew is as guilty of the same things? I mean, yeah, I mean, nobody's perfect. But, but the Jews were, were surely more righteous than their pagan neighbors, weren't they? And what about my clean-cut neighbor? You know, I've got this neighbor across the street, and he goes to work every day, and he takes care of his family, and he's a good neighbor, and surely he's more righteous than the guy on the other side of the street. So how can Paul say that this Jew practices the same things? Well, in some respects, you might be right. Your religious neighbor, who goes to work and takes care of his family, might be more righteous than some other people. But when you stand before God someday, he won't ask you if you are more righteous than the scumbag next door. He's not going to say, were you better than the guy in the other cubicle? No, he's going to ask you, were you righteous as God is righteous? God's righteousness will be the standard. And when you compare yourself to to God, and just specifically here in this context, to to the list of sins in chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, you quickly find that you don't measure up. 
So, so, I mean, that's really where he's pointing because he says you commit the same sins. Well, what are the sins? The sins are the sins of chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. So, look back at that list. How many people could legitimately say that they are never guilty of the sin of greed? How about envy, deceit, strife? You know, what about gossip and slander? You know, what about uh, being arrogant and boastful? Do we ever do that? What about disobedient to parents? You know, folks, we are all guilty. We all want to believe that we're good people. But, but an honest comparison of, of my character to the genuine heart righteousness that God demands demonstrates that I am not righteous like God is. We are all guilty of the same basic sins, even if we don't go as far as some other people. You know, now, you might say, well, well, I'm not a religious elite pastor. I'm not this Jewish guy, but, but I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. I've, do, I've done good things. Well, well, if you're not convinced that you are in need of salvation, I would just urge you to take a pen and look through that list of sins in verses 29 through 31 and just put a check mark by all the ones that you have ever committed in your life. And I'm sure there will be at least a few check marks in that list. And you will quickly find that you are more of a sinner than you probably want to believe. And so you need grace. You need salvation. And that is especially important because Paul also tells us in in these verses that God will judge these sins. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, and we know. He says, we and the Jew, we agree that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So again, such things are the sins of chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. So if you are guilty of any of those sins, God says the judgment of God rightly falls on you. And verses 8 and 9 are going to say that that's no small thing to mess with, that God's judgment is severe. So so Paul here goes right after his Jewish opponent and and anyone else who thinks he is good enough to earn salvation or to earn a relationship with God. Even the most righteous, religious person on earth is a sinner who breaks God's law. And every one of us deserves his judgment. All of us have a sin problem. But but that's not our only problem. No, no, verses 3 through 5 go on to confront the delusion of this religious person that that God privileges certain people. So so the delusion is is that God privileges certain people. So so there's really two delusions that this Jewish opponent is under in the passage. And and so we just saw in verses 1 and 2, the first delusion that he has is that he is righteous. He thinks he measures up to God's standard. But then verse 3 mentions a second common delusion among the Jews. And that is is that they thought that because they were Jewish, that that somehow that earned them a a favoritism with God where God would not judge them by the same standard as He would judge the Gentile world. 
And in fact, uh, we have this quote from uh, the, the Wisdom of Solomon. The Wisdom of Solomon is an apocryphal book that was written about a century before Christ, so not too far from the time of Paul. And it says, uh, speaking here as a Jew, for even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power. But we will not sin because we know that we are accounted as yours. So, so you see there in the first part of that statement that the Jews of Paul's day thought that, that God was, was not going to judge them by the same standard, that God favored them and that God would, would give them a little more grace than he would to their Gentile neighbors. And doesn't that sound a lot like people in our day? Now, you might not see it as much here in California as you would in the Midwest or in the Bible Belt, but there are loads of people in our country who are very proud of their family heritage in a particular church. Our family, we have been Catholics, we have been Lutherans, we have been Methodists for generations you know, we built this church. Our name is on a brick outside. And, and, so, and so they're proud of that heritage, and, and they're good Christian people. And, and because they're good Christian people who have always served God, they assume that means that God must accept them, even though they've got these issues on the side. So, so what do you say to those people? I mean, those are the hardest people to talk to. I mean, those people, those are the people, I remember my, my neighbor in Michigan, uh, he, was, he had lived his whole life as a Lutheran, and boy, any time I tried to bring up the gospel, he was offended that I would think he had a problem, that he had a need, because he was a Lutheran, and so how dare I talk to him about a need for Christ? So what do you say to these people? Well, well Paul gives three important clarifications in these uh, three verses for, the, for this particular person. So first of all, God doesn't play favorites. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says to this Jewish opponent, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, the obvious answer to that rhetorical question is no. That, that you are not going to get favoritism with God. You know, in fact, that's really the main point of the section. Look at what he says in verse 6. Verse 6 says that God will render to each person according to his deeds. And verse 11 says there is no partiality with God. God judges all people the same. So, so maybe there's someone here who, who has always made a similar assumption as this Jewish man. Now, you think you have some kind of in with God because of your family heritage, because of your social status, or, or because of some other reason you've created in your mind. You know, I've, I've talked to people who, you, know, you ask them, are you a Christian? Or you start, they start to describe their faith. And, you know, I've heard people say things like, you know, me and God, we have our thing. You know, and I talk to him, and he talks to me, and We've got our thing, and, and, and that thing is not based in, in the truth of Scripture. It's some sort of imaginary relationship that, that they think they have with God, and, and they think gets them some kind of favoritism with Him. But our text is clear. God does not play favorites. He judges all people, including you, 
based on the same standard, which is his righteousness. So, so you can't say, you, you can't point to anything in your history, anything in your nationality, anything in anything, and say that is going to get you favoritism with God. And then verse 4 makes a second important clarification, which is that God doesn't extend mercy flippantly. So, so look at verse 4. It says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now, now this is the verse that uh, I was fascinated by this week because, because it made me think about some things that I don't know that I'd ever really considered uh, as much as I should. And, and particularly, it, it confronts an important false assumption. So specifically, Paul's Jewish opponent could cite many examples of God's kindness and patience and, and tolerance, right? So he's a Jew, that God had given them the law. And God had given Israel all sorts of promises. At the time that Paul wrote this letter, they had a beautiful temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews uh, were, uh, enjoyed security in the Roman Empire, and, and they were a protected religion within the Roman Empire. And, and so when the Jew looked at all these things, all these blessings, he thought, well, surely God is pleased with us. Because look at all of the wonderful things that we enjoy. That must mean that God accepts us. And you know, many people today make that same assumption. That the good things that they enjoy in life, their wealth, their security, their family, their good job, they assume that all, that th- all those things mean that God accepts them. But what did Jesus say in Luke 18, 24 and 25? He said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now why is that? Why is it that being rich probably does not indicate you're going to end up in heaven, but instead that you're going to end up in hell? Well, one reason is that that rich people assume that their wealth is a sign of God's acceptance and favor. And so they don't think that they need anything at all. And God must surely be pleased with me if he would give me so many good things. But Paul says that they have misinterpreted God's kindness and tolerance and patience. I mean, when, when God is kind and merciful, it's not a, necessarily a stamp of God's approval. No, instead, those things are a stamp of God's goodness. They're not a stamp of your goodness, they're a stamp of God's goodness, which is intended to drive you to repentance and faith, and to give you opportunity to repent. And, you know, I think it's a really, uh, just a really helpful point to remember as you share the gospel with someone who is too secure in their bank account or earthly blessings. You ever tried to share the gospel with someone and they just look at you like, I don't need that. My life is good. I've got everything I need. Life is comfortable. I don't need the gospel. And and God surely must be pleased with me if he's given me all this stuff. Well, you can say to that person, look at everything that God has given you. 
And God says right here, he interprets all of that for you in, in Romans 2 verse 4. And he says that he has given all of you, given you all of this so that you will know that he is good. And so because of seeing his goodness, that, and as well, he's given you health and, and he has given you opportunity. He's given you all these things so that you will turn to him and repent. So, so look at the goodness of God and see his goodness and then use the opportunity to turn to Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So, so you can urge that person, please do not misinterpret the blessings God has given. They are intended to lead you to repentance. So be saved today. And maybe that's what someone in this room needs to hear. You know, it might be that, that, that you've lived a very comfortable life. It could be a teenager or even a child in this room. You've lived a comfortable life and God has been good to you in multitudes of ways. And, and you have used the goodness of God to justify apathy towards the things of God. And, and please understand that God's kindness and blessing on your life is not a seal of God's approval. Or God's acceptance of you. No, instead, God says in this verse that those things are an invitation to you to repent and be saved. They are intended to lead you to repentance, is what the verse says. So, so please, don't misinterpret the blessings of God. Respond to the gospel and be born again. And that is so important because of a third clarification Paul makes, which is that God doesn't forget our sin. Verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, now that verse presents a startling contrast with verse 4, right? Because verse 4 says, that God is kind and merciful and good for the purpose of leading you to repentance. But because people reject that and because they feel secure in the blessings of God and they don't repent, then verse 5 says, instead of, of enjoying salvation in Christ, those who reject Him because of their stubbornness and unrepentance, they are storing up wrath. You know, so many people so many people think that, that everything between them and God is surely good. But, but Jesus warned in Matthew 7, verses 21 and 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so these people, you know, people that we run into all the time, they say they're Christian because their family is Christian or, or whatever else it might be. They think they're storing up treasures in heaven. They think that they are doing all these great things, but, but in a tragic twist, Paul says 
they fail to see that instead of storing up treasures in heaven, they are storing up wrath and the righteous judgment of God. And I really pray that no one here is under this same delusion. It might be that you've grown up in a Christian home your whole life, and you've always thought of yourself as a Christian and a good person, because that's just how you've what you've been around your whole life. You've never done anything too bad. You've, you've lived a relatively decent life. And so you've never worried about the judgment of God. Because for the most part, all you've experienced is the kindness of God. But, but understand that God doesn't play favorites with people who grew up in Christian homes. God doesn't play favorites with, with people who call themselves Christian. No, he judges everyone equally. And you will be held to the standard of God's righteousness. So you need to respond to the kindness of God by admitting your sin and your desperate need of salvation. And I would urge you to do that today. You know, there's lots of excuses that you might have about why today's not a good day for you to get saved. You don't want to get embarrassed. You don't want to hurt someone. You don't want them to think you're a liar because you called yourself a... You come up with all sorts of excuses. But if you have not received Christ, verses 4 and 5 are very clear. That every day you wait, you are storing up wrath. Every day you wait, you are bringing the mercy and kindness and patience of God closer and closer to the limit. And you are not guaranteed another opportunity to respond to the gospel. The Bible says there comes a point where God stops giving that opportunity. So today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to receive Christ. Because you are not guaranteed another day to respond. Do not toy with the patience and mercy of God. Respond to the mercy of God. And this is so important because verses 6 through 11 proceed to warn us about the judgment that is coming after death. And before we get into verses 6 through 11, I think it's helpful to just recognize uh, that, that these verses are arranged in, in what is commonly called a chiasm. And, and you can see on the screen how it's represented. So basically, uh, a chiasm is, a, is a, a literary device where, where the first statement and the last statement are parallel, the second statement and the second to last are parallel, and, and, and on and on towards the middle. And so I, I put it on the screen so we can kind of see the structure. And if you read through the passage, I think you can see pretty easily uh, how this passage is set up. So, so, so three main truths in verses 6 through 11. And the first is, is that God's judgment is just. And really, this is the main point of all of verses 1 through 11. That that so many people want to believe that God's not going to really hold me accountable for everything I've done. That that God is is surely going to show me just a little bit of grace. You know, again, me and God have our thing, right? So he's not really going to hold me accountable. And so they hope that that God's just going to wink at their sins. But that's not what God says. Look at what he says in verse 6. He is going to render to each person 
according to his deeds. So God is going to exact perfect justice from every individual. Every good deed and every evil deed will be perfectly taken into account. You know, and again, so many people think they've got some key to getting a little favoritism from God. You know, it could be anything from their family heritage to to how they've suffered. How could God judge me when when I've been through so much? Or it could just be, well, I'm 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 a red blooded American. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course God accepts me. But what does God say in verse 11? He says, there is no partiality with God. Every person will be judged by the same standard, the perfect righteousness of God. And that includes you. That includes me. That includes everyone in this room. And then the middle two sections get more specific about the outcomes of this judgment. And God makes it very clear in verses 7 through 10 that there are two ways to live your life. There's only two. And those two ways to live your life end in one of two places. So first of all, we see in verses 7 and 10 that God will reward the righteous. So so verse 7 says, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And verse 10 says, But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, now these verses, I do need to just mention, they, they raise some difficult questions. Because Paul is later going to argue in this passage, or, or later in chapter 3 and 4, that, that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is the major emphasis of Romans 1 through 4. So, so notice, for example, what he says in chapter 3, verse 28. He says... For we maintain that a man is justified or declared righteous before God by faith apart from the works of the law. And he says in chapter 4, verse 16, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it might be in accordance with grace. So so both of those verses are very clear that you cannot earn yourself a place in heaven. That the only way you will be in heaven is because of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection, which is applied to you by faith. That's the only reason, only way any of us can be saved. But but if that's true, well well, then what does Paul mean in chapter 2, verses 7 and 10? Because it sure sounds like he's saying that, that you will be allowed into heaven by your good works. I mean, he says there in, in verse 7, those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor, immortality, and immortality, eternal life. And again, verse 10, glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Now, hopefully, we are agreed that we can rule out right away that Paul was confused or contradicting himself. Right? I mean, Paul was a smart man, brilliant man, so there's no way... He's going to say one thing in chapter 2 and turn around in chapter 3 and say the exact opposite. So, so he can't be contradicting himself. And as well, of course, ultimately, we know that's not the case because he, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So some people 
then have said that what Paul's doing here is he's speaking hypothetically. That in theory, if someone could perfectly obey the law, they could earn eternal life. But we're all sinners, so that never happens, and so he's just talking about a hypothetical that never actually comes about. And, and, and that's possible, but, but I don't think, that there's no indication in the text that Paul is speaking in hypothetical terms here. I think he's, he's speaking in reality. So, so what does he mean? Well, the best view is that Paul is describing the good works that necessarily flow from genuine conversion. So they don't earn us salvation, but they are a necessary proof of genuine conversion. And so because of that, because of of how essential a transformed life is to genuine salvation, that the Bible oftentimes ties our entrance into heaven to works that manifest repentance. So for example, Jesus said in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but notice, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And the point is not that doing the will of your Father earns you eternal life, but but the point is instead that doing the will of the Father is a necessary outcome of genuine faith. So so for example, um, James 2.26 says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So, so if there is no, so, so genuine faith always produces a transformed life. Not perfection, but it does produce a transformed life. And that connection is so essential that Jesus says in, in that verse in Matthew, that, that he, Jesus uses it to contrast those who will be in heaven with those who will not. And I believe Paul's doing the same thing here in Romans chapter 2. Now again, genuine Christians still sin. And Paul's going to talk plenty about that in Romans 6 through 8. But they also produce genuine fruits of repentance and of the Spirit's indwelling power. So so verse 7 says that Christians persevere in doing good. They continue in the faith. They do works in keeping with repentance. And not only that, he says they pursue glory and honor and immortality. And that's not in this world, it's in the next. So so Christians who are born again by the Spirit of God, they they live for eternity. They want to lay up treasures in heaven. And they are pursuing glory and honor, not in this world, but in the next. And that's exactly what they will receive. What does verse 10 say? It says, they will receive glory and honor and peace. They'll go to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So genuine believers someday are going to be welcomed into the presence of the Lord. And we are going to receive glory and honor, not from some itty-bitty little person on this earth that doesn't matter. We will receive glory and honor from Jesus and immortality, life in his presence forever and ever. And so it's going to be absolutely wonderful and awesome. And we're not going to boast and say, well, I earned this, I did this, look at me. We're going to boast in Christ and glory in him. And it's wonderful to have that assurance and hope that I'm in Christ 
I'm living for Him. He is faithful to keep me and to hold me. And someday He will reward me for all of eternity. That's a wonderful assurance and hope. And that's, of course, primarily because heaven is so wonderful. But also, we have to deal with the bad news, which is that, on the other hand, God will condemn the unrighteous. Look at what he says there in the middle of the chiasm, verses 8 and 9. He says, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Now, the reality is no one wants to believe that these verses talk about them. But, but isn't it interesting that who, who is Paul talking about here? Does he say he's talking about an adulterer? Does he say he's talking about a murderer? Does he bring up some horrendous, horrible evil that, that we think makes someone a scumbag at the bottom of the earth? No, what's he say? Those who are selfishly ambitious. How many of you have ever been selfishly ambitious? I mean, I have. We all have. And, and so, and that describes, you know, and selfish ambition is a great term for, for the religious, pious individual. You know, so many people, I mean, yeah, they do good works, they live a good life, they're, they're impressive. But, but, you know, it's really not about Christ. It, it's all driven by self and And they want to make an appearance in a scene. They want to look like something, be something, have something for themselves. It's not really about honoring the Lord and loving other people. So so they might do some really good things. But do they genuinely love people and love the Lord? Do they obey the truth, as Jesus said, or Paul says, from the inside out? Because they love people and love God? Generally speaking, the answer is no. So even if they impress the world and look the part of a religious person, God says, I will not show them partiality. Instead, he will render to each person according to his deeds. And so they will be condemned to hell. That's what God says. And verse 8 says that, that so, so they will receive, uh, so verse 8 says that God, they will endure, endure the wrath and the indignation of God. And so the religious hypocrite, the person who grew up calling themselves a Christian and you know, taking care of their family and going to work, that has never really been born again, they will endure the same wrath and indignation as the pagan who, who has made no profession of God. And in fact, I think you could say that, that many of them will endure more wrath and more indignation because they've had multitudes more opportunities to, to hear the truth. They've had greater access to the truth and they have said no to God time and time and time again while others have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. They are storing up wrath. And so they will be condemned to hell where verse 9 says they will receive tribulation and distress for all of eternity. So, I know this is hard stuff, but we have to understand that God doesn't play favorites. 
And verse 9 says that God's judgment will equally fall on the Jew first and also the Greek. And then verse 10 says that God's gift of eternal life is equally available to the Jew first and also the Greek. So your family, your nationality, your good works, your your spiritual heritage will, will neither deny you access to the grace of God because it's not what you think it ought to be, nor will it give you favoritism with God. No, God judges all people equally, whether it's for eternal life or to be condemned away from the Lord. So, so therefore, only one thing matters as it concerns your soul. Have you believed on Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you never have, uh, look at what Paul says in chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. He's talking here about Abraham, the father of Jews, which of course would be very significant to this Jewish man that he's, he's debating. He says, for if Abraham was justified or declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what as due. You earn wages, in other words, what he's saying. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, or again you could say declares righteous, the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So it's pretty simple there. Stop boasting in the family you came from. Stop boasting in your good life. Stop boasting in all the great and glorious things that you've done for God and how you're a moral, upstanding citizen and all that stuff. Stop boasting in yourself and your works and put your faith in Jesus. And God says, you will be credited with God's righteousness and you will be saved. It doesn't mean you're perfect. Verse 5 says God justifies the ungodly. So he declares righteous people who are still sinners. And if you've never done that before, please respond to God's kindness and patience on you with faith and repentance. Do not, please, do not think lightly of the kindness of God. Do not... And if your response is, I've got a lot going on today, maybe I'll think about that tomorrow. Then you are denying, you are rejecting the very heart of what Paul is saying here. He is saying, do not think lightly of the kindness of God. Please be saved today. And for those of us who are saved, this passage should serve as a sober call to share the gospel with, with everyone. Now, I, I've been challenged with that this week, that it's so easy to judge people on human appearances. You know, they, they show up at church, they look a certain way, or you see them around town, they look a certain way, and we just think, they must be Christians. You know? I mean, we, uh, when we were up at Mammoth last week, my, my family, we were the first ones to get to the lake on Friday, and there was another family that pulled up right next to us, and they had a minivan and four kids in the stroller, and you know, and I joke, I was joking, but I said to Heidi, like, well, they're probably Christians. You know, don't we do that? 
You know, we, we look at certain people and we think they're surely one of us because of what we see and what we assume. And, and Paul here is clear that just because people look the part does not mean that they're born again. Now, hopefully they are, and maybe they are, but we can't assume it. No, all people must be born again from the most privileged, the people with the strongest Christian heritage, to those who have never heard about Jesus and live wretched, sinful lives. So so let's ask the hard questions. Let's be bold enough to point out people's hypocrisies. And let's point them to the only hope of salvation, which is Jesus. This passage is clear that eternity stands in the balance. So we need to be bold with the gospel of Christ. Let's have everyone bow your head and close your eyes. And in a moment, I'll pray and we'll sing. But, but just based on the, the content of the sermon today, I, I just want to ask if there's anyone here who would say, I need to respond to the gospel today. I need to be saved. Or I have questions. I'm not there yet, but I have questions and I'd like prayer. I'd like to speak with someone. If there's anyone like that, would you raise your hand so that I can pray for you and potentially seek you out? Is there anyone like that today? Thank you. Thank you for that as well. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? All right. Lord, thank you for the direct nature of your word. And Lord, I pray that all of us would leave today knowing Christ as Savior. And uh, God, I pray that, that we would not look lightly on your kindness to us. And Father, I thank you for the hope of the gospel. And Father, I thank you for the assurance it gives. Help those of us who know you as Savior to rest our hope in the right place. And help us to be bold and faithful witnesses for you. And so thank you for your word. And God, I pray for its continued work among us. And Lord, that you'd use us to take it to all people this week. In Jesus' name, amen.